0: Welcome, everybody, to the Gray Zone. I'm Max Blumenthal. This is another Gray Zone live stream with an incredible guest. We have Ray McGovern, a former CIA officer, analyst, briefer, and veteran anti-war activist, columnist, and uh, one of our favorite Russiagate commentators. Uh, and And then we're, of course, joined by... Aaron Mate, my colleague at the gray zone, the man that Jimmy Dore calls the buzzsaw, uh, because of his systematic demolition or methodical demolition of Russia Gate. And we're going to talk about a number of topics today. Uh, first, we're gonna talk about the explosive revelations of Hillary Clinton's direct involvement in spinning out one of the biggest lies of Russia Gate, and of course, Russia Gate was the intelligence scandal or intelligence scam that helped drive the United States into a proxy war that's currently being waged in Ukraine. Uh, So it's important to examine all these lies. Uh, We're also going to discuss the demise of Nina Jankowicz, former DHS minister of truth, weird Nina Jankowicz. No offense to weird Al Yankovic and her... um, and, and and her board of disinformation, and we're going to discuss the proxy war itself in Ukraine, along with the support of the progressive squad and Bernie Sanders. Uh, but uh, first, let me toss to you, Aaron. Uh, you've been covering this story pretty extensively, the prosecution of former uh, Clinton lawyer Donald Sussman, the involvement of Fusion GPS, uh, help us sort out the players here and understand why this is such an explosive scandal.
1: So Michael Sussman, who's on trial right now, he is an attorney with Perkins Coy, and that is the attorney used by Hillary Clinton and the DNC during the 2016 campaign. And Sussman and Perkins Coy essentially managed the Russiagate disinformation campaign. They hired Fusion GPS. And Fusion GPS produced the Steele dossier, which was fed by the Clinton campaign and Fusion GPS to both the FBI and the media to try to drum up an investigation and media hype about a sweeping Trump-Russia conspiracy. We all we all know how that ended up. And, and they also, Sussman particularly, hired a firm called CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike is a private cyber firm that was the first entity to publicly accuse Russia of hacking the DNC, which is the allegation at the heart of Russiagate. And later on, we learned, and we'll talk to Ray about this, that under oath, the head of CrowdStrike, <laughs> Sean Henry, privately admitted that in fact, while they were claiming publicly that Russian hackers had infiltrated the DNC and stolen DNC emails, that in fact they had no evidence at all <laughs> of that allegation. That's something they admitted under oath in December, 2017. And we, the public, didn't find that out until nearly three years later in May, 2020 long after the Mueller investigation had shut down. So Michael Sussman, the Clinton attorney, is on trial right now for one narrow aspect of that scam. And that relates to Alpha Bank, which is just one plank of the various Trump-Russia conspiracy theories that the Clinton campaign invented. This idea of a secret covert communications channel between the uh, Trump campaign and Russia. And as a part of that, Sussman and some allies gave some data to the FBI which uh, they said was possibly evidence of a covert communications channel between Trump and Russia. And they gave them uh, like papers out uh, detailing this theory and even some technical data that they said was uh, proof of it or evidence of it. Uh, the FBI investigated this. And as we're learning, learning out from the trial, quickly realized that this was all bunk, that there was nothing to this. And it looks like, although this has not been proven conclusively yet, it looks like this was this was a deliberate fabrication that actually the computer researchers that were hired to uh, put out this, this allegation actually were a part of a fraud to make it look deceptively as if there was something covert going on between a Trump server and Russia. If there was any contact at all, it looks like it was just basically marketing emails being sent from one entity to another, which we can talk more about. It doesn't really matter. The point is, though, when Sussman went to the FBI, and this is what he's charged for, he's accused of lying to the FBI when he told them that he was not there on behalf of any client. So even though he was working for the Hillary Clan, uh, even though he was working for the Hillary campaign and billing them for his time uh, and billing them for, you know, even even for the hard drives that he used to give to the FBI. Till back d- down to the last detail, even though he was doing all that, he went to the FBI and said, basically, I'm just here as a concerned citizen. I'm not here on behalf of the campaign I'm working for. And I'm going to withhold from you the fact that we've actually been concocting this plot behind the scenes. That's basically what Sussman is on trial for. So it's a narrow charge of perjury, of basically misleading the FBI on who he was working for. But it has really broad implications because it it, it raises a very obvious question. Mm-hmm if this aspect of the Trump-Russia narrative was a fraud and was based on deceit, then what else was based on fraud and deceit? And what else was the FBI either misled about or given false information about? And that's the question that is basically playing out in this courtroom right now. And so as a part of that, Robbie Mook, who was Clinton's campaign manager, has admitted that Hillary Clinton personally approved of making these these allegations public. Because basically the point of going to the FBI was to give the, the Clinton campaign an excuse to drop an October surprise so that they could say that the FBI was investigating this. And that's what Hillary Clinton did. Max showed the tweet before where Hillary Clinton uh, in late October made public that, the F, that there's uh, suspicions of a covert Trump Russia bank server, uh, uh, a covert Trump Russia communications channel. And uh, hiding the fact that it was actually her campaign that came up with that plot. So that's what's coming on right out uh, right now in this trial. And Ray, as someone who has been debunking Russiagate from the very, very start, especially on the core allegation that Russia hacked the DNC, what is your reaction to the trial so far?
2: Well, Aaron, uh, I just have to comment that I'm I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked that the FBI, would become involved in this kind of thing? Because when push comes to shove, uh, you know the story, uh, it wasn't just Perkins Coy, it was the FBI itself. How did James Comey and all his lieutenants think that they should risk this kind of uh, clearly, uh, clear interference in a, <clears throat> in a presidential campaign? I think people need to know that right off the bat. And that is simply, I'll take a little quote from a book that James Comey wrote. He said, You know, um, I, James Comey, was proceeding under the assumption that Hillary Clinton was his shoe in to become our next president of the United States. Bah, bah, bah. Well, end quote. Now, if you're sure that one candidate is going to win, you're going to do everything you can to help her, particularly when the other one is so widely despised. And when you know you're not going to ever be held accountable, you're going to get plaudits. Uh, You're not going to get prison. (laughs) And so this whole thing was orchestrated by by our security services, FBI and CIA, in particular, in parts of the Justice Department. So here they go with this concocted story about... Ties between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, a Russian bank. Uh, we know now from emails that it was completely made out of whole cloth. We know that the techies said, "My God, what's going to happen when people take a quick look at this? <laughs> this will never, never work." And yet, Robbie Mook and Jake Sullivan and John Podesta and. Uh, Jennifer Palmieri, the PR person for Hillary Clinton. So you know, this would be really good. And let's do it. Let's do it September, October. And then let's make sure that Jake leaks his little message saying, hmm, this could be the most direct link between Donald Trump and Moscow. So we can and by only Jake, assume Jake, that. No. Yeah, Jake Yeah, uh, Jake uh, Sullivan, yeah uh claimed uh, we can only assume that the federal authorities now will explore the direct connection between trump and russia whoa now not only that we had hillary clinton one week before the election saying tweeting quote computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the trump organization to a russian based bank So this was early on. We're talking before the election here. This is how hard they tried to blacken uh, Trump. Of course, he was extremely blackenable, if you will. I I should make clear that my wife always says, Ray, make sure you know how, how, how you feel about Donald Trump. And the way I feel about Donald Trump is simply the worst president of the United States ever had. But (laughs) he can be right about certain things. He is right about, he calls it a hoax. That's because he's from Manhattan. I'm from the Bronx, okay? I call it a crock. It was a crock from the beginning. And when wonder of wonders, it didn't win the election for them. It was a crock ever ever since for months and months and years and years. And the only thing that I'll take exception with with respect to what you said, Aaron, is that you said that uh, the head of CrowdStrike testified in December of 2017. Okay, so Mueller is just getting started with his Russiagate investigation. The head of CrowdStrike testified there was no technical evidence that Russia hacked into those DNC emails. Uh, Anybody hacked into those DNC, there was no technical evidence and that was our job. James Comey gave it to us to to do that forensics. Uh, Then you said, Aaron, and this, of course, people need to know. You said that in May of 2020, we learned that this was all. You know, this was this his testimony under oath. He had to come clean. He said, "No, Russian, the Russian hacking uh, is a hoax or a crock." Okay, the only problem is you said we we know that. Well. Aaron, you, and Max, and I know that. But that information, forcibly released from Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, on the 7th of May, 2020, has not been replayed in the Washington Post or the New York Times or any of the mainstream media. So you, we know that, but 90% of Americans have no idea of that because that major story, i.e., that the Russian hacking was a crock (laughs) has been deep-sixed by the New York Times for two years and running, okay? So uh, this thing, (laughs) if I I seem a little exasperated by this thing, it's that the media still has a hold on all this stuff. And if you want to talk about interference in elections, well, you got interference in elections. Alpha Bank is a prime example, but so is Hunter's (laughs) Hunter's laptop. I couldn't believe that Glenn Greenwald was the only one with the guts to say, "Wait a second, A month before the twenty twenty election, and had a he had to leave the the, the this press outfit that he had founded for God's sake.
0: So the, inter- you know, the intercept,
2: up, yeah, the intercept. So you know, <laughs> it's really really sad. You and I, and we can re- try to reach as many people as 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 we can, and we need to keep doing that uh but even you know even even this has been you know i haven't i saw this in the washington examiner in the gazette i, I mean as long as people rely on the washington post and new york times for this information they're going to be kept in the dark even i dare say if uh, they take this uh, scapegoat uh, michael sussman put him in jail for three days, uh, nobody's going to ask why, because they won't be fully informed about it. Maybe I'm too pessimistic on that. Maybe now that it's in the courts, um, it'll work. Maybe the truth will come out. Uh, I'm, I'm from Missouri on that.
0: Yeah, it really does seem like a, a, a deliberate oversight here. It's such a massive story. We've already seen Hillary get a kind of slap on the wrist for lying about the role of the law firm Perkins Coy in the Steele dossier, which is one of the greatest right. intelligence hoaxes of our time. I mean, you would think there would be a much more serious penalty there, uh, but this is all being downplayed. And as far as the way that the New York Times and Washington Post have played this, I think of there's a metaphor there. Uh, I saw Ralph Nader complaining two days ago that the New York Times sports section no longer prints box scores of baseball games uh, and that they instead devoted their coverage to kind of human interest stories about European soccer clubs. And this really, it really speaks to the kind of audience that the New York Times is catering to. They're not appealing to regular New Yorkers who want to just know the facts, at least as far as the New York Times can compile them as the newspaper of record. It is essentially an organ of elite liberal propaganda along with the Washington post. So naturally this kind of gigantic corruption scandal wouldn't be fit to print. Um, let me just play a clip. Um, I just pulled it up of how this story played out in 2018 when Russiagate was in full flight. Um, this is from Rachel Maddow who Aaron exposed at the time as Basically, devoting the majority of her coverage to Russia Gate and hyping up just hatred of Russia as the number one enemy of America, which, you know, has really paid off. Um, Do you I know, have to listen? Of- <laughs> Let's just, I, I feel like it's important to remember for 45 seconds how this was taken seriously and is now exposed as a complete fraud. In our election. There have been specific questions raised as to whether Alpha Bank might have been involved in surreptitious contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia while the attack was underway. You might remember that ultimately the sort of baffling reporting about unexplained communications. During the election, between computer servers in Russia linked to Alphabank and a computer server in Trump Tower linked to the Trump Organization. Very interesting reporting. Ultimately, it's open-ended. We don't have any idea what that server communication was about, but it raised questions. Alphabank and its founders are also mentioned prominently in the Christopher Steele dossier, mm. which, of course, outlines allegations of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Ro- Russian interference in our election. So... That references the article in Slate magazine which is sort of credited for launching Russia gate. Uh, it was by Franklin 4 in 2016. Uh, any any comments Aaron or Ray?
1: Well, first of all, Franklin has been rewarded for his servitude to Russia gate by being uh, promoted to the to the Atlantic magazine run by former Israeli prison guard Jeffrey Goldberg. so that's that's the reward he's gotten for taking part in the Russia Gate. <laughs> disinformation campaign. And what's interesting about this case with Michael Sussman, one of the things that have come out about it is the communications between Michael Sussman, Fusion GPS, and their media lackeys like Franklin Foyer. And basically, the emails that have come out show Fusion GPS, particularly uh, Glenn Simpson, who was one of the co founders of Fusion GPS, again, which is working for the Clinton campaign, produced a steel dossier, basically telling Franklin Foyer when to publish uh, his story. Like, now's the time, buddy. Like, get on it. That's essentially what the emails that have come out show. And so this is a case that undermines the just the integral link between people who call themselves journalists, that's their job title, but really what they're doing in practice is acting as stenographers for people like the Clinton campaign and their allies inside the national security state. And then people like Rachel Maddow, it's their job then to uh, promote the fabrications that they came up with and basically keep this going for more than two years. I mean, this story about the alpha bank, it, it, endured for a long time. And every once in a while, Maddo would come along to raise new questions about it when the whole time it was just a straight up fraud.
0: Yeah. I, I actually, now, I grew I grew up with Franklin four in DC. Uh, I went to elementary oh. school with him. I knew his, his little brother was in my class, the famous author, Jonathan Safran four. And mm. Fra- Franklin four, he, he, his role was to convey an aura of seriousness, uh, to provide a, a patina of seriousness to this bunk story because he had the pedigree of someone from D.C. For, who had written for the New Republic. He was in Slate, which is the you know online publication of the liberal Bien-Pensant who liked to explore ideas. So of course, if you look at like a Slate article, it has really tacky. Um, like clickbait ads at the bottom. It's actually gone to complete crap. But uh, then it, you know, it goes to Maddow and becomes an uh, article of faith. Um, Ray, Aaron raised the issue before of the, the question before of, if this is being exposed as fake, then what else is fake? And we now know the steel dossier, pretty much everything original that former MI6 agent and mercenary conman Christopher Steele put in that document has been proven to be false. Uh, What else do you think needs to be exposed that hasn't been fully exposed? And what else bears investigation about the origins of Russiagate?
2: Well, actually, I'm tempted to answer what else do you need? The, the, the whole thing is crumbling, but, but I, would, I would like to add a couple of salient facts that not many people have uh, seen really or realized. Um, there was a Russian intelligence analysis report saying that Hillary Clinton approved using Russiagate for lots of reasons to help her campaign on the 20 26th yeah 26th of July 2016 now why do i mention that well this is about this was just about the time of the democratic national committee meeting and there were other reports that uh, this is what she decided to do um, why is it important well because a crimes report was filed this was a us intelligence report Saying Russian analysts believe that Hillary Clinton approved "quote blame Russia" end quote plan, and that that was on July 26 that she did this. Now, why is this? Why is this interesting? Well, John Brennan briefed President Obama on this. Not only that, but as I mentioned before. A crimes report was filed on September 7th, 2016. What's a crimes report? A crimes report is when the agency or some other security service realizes that there's been a leak, there's been sort of unauthorized disclosure. Well, if it's important enough, you need to file with the Justice Department crimes report. So put yourself in the position of Brennan who's deep into all this stuff, Uh, the Justice Department, many of whom are deep into all this stuff. And the president, I think he was probably well-informed of all this stuff because he and Brennan were like this, okay? Now, what does this mean? This means somebody leaked. (laughs) Somebody leaked a Russian analysis that said Hillary Clinton approved the Get Russia plan on 26th of July, 2016, and that it was going around in intelligence service circles, and it would come to the attention of people, and we need to report this to the president, make sure he knows about this, and to the FBI. Now, when they reported it to James Comey, I can imagine John Brennan saying, hey, Jim, guess what? We have a Russian report now that Hillary approved this get Russia plan on the 26th of July. And Comey said, oh, shocked, <laughs> I'm shocked, okay. Well, what was the outcome of all this? Well, it went forward as a crimes report. There was never any information to the degree that the Justice Department followed up on this leak. And it fit in very, very, very tightly. Uh, with the narrative as it evolved as early as July, August, September, October of 2017. Footnote, who's the favorite recipient of CIA information in the New York Times? You got it, David Sanger. He filed a report, huh, it's the same day. It's the same day as the Russian analysts say Hillary approved this campaign.
1: And it says
2: American intelligence agencies have told the White House that they have, quote, high confidence, end quote, that the Russian government was behind the theft of emails and documents from the Democratic National Committee, according to federal officials who have been briefed on the evidence. (laughs) Well, there are lots of coincidences in the world. Uh, If the. if David Sanger didn't have the reputation that he so so appropriately deserves, having been next only to Judy Miller on WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction in Iraq, if he didn't have this reputation, well, it was, well, that's a coincidence. Uh, the Russians learned that she decided this. And, oh, here, here's a is a dateline same day by David Sanger. So the whole thing is, you know, if further proof were needed, you have these guys smirking. Uh, Brennan going through the motions to brief the president and going through the motions to send it through Comey to, to the Department of Justice. With it. Oh, isn't that interesting? Like this was, this was news to them. They're part of the plot for God's sake. And I'll just say one more time: they thought they'd get away with it. They thought they'd get promoted or lauded or clouts all around, not prison, uh, by by doing this hoax or crock as I call it. Um, because Clinton was sure to win. Now the supreme irony, of course, is she didn't win. And what did that mean? That meant they had to cover their tracks. And that explains that explains why RussiaGate not only didn't go away, but thrived for three more, for four more years, for God's sake. And why it's still thriving. And why all my good friends in New York, who are highly educated and read the New York Times back to back every morning. I just think McGovern's gone off his rocker because it couldn't be that bad. And it is that bad. And the as sooner as they realize that, the better for all of us.
1: Yeah, they needed the Mueller investigation because th- the problem for them was they had relied so much on the Steele dossier at that point. They had relied on it for investigative leads. They had relied on it even to wiretap Carter Page, who was a low level Trump campaign volunteer. And they realized quickly that the Steele dossier was a scam and came from the Clinton campaign. So the purpose of the Mueller investigation was basically to act as content creators, to come up with some, anything else that didn't go back to Steele that could be used to make this investigation look credible. Because you raise a very important point about the warning from Brennan to Obama in late July 2016. That is before the FBI investigation into Trump-Russia collusion officially opens. That investigation opens up on July 31st. Mm -hmm. Brennan gives that warning to Obama on July 26th, 27th, right? Right. And so the FBI opened up this Trump Russia collusion investigation even after being warned by Brennan that essentially there was a plot by the Hillary uh, by Mm -hmm. the by the Hillary campaign to concoct a fake Trump Russia collusion controversy. And at that point. At that point already, you know, they say that it had nothing to do with Christopher Steele, but but I've written about this. In the month before the FBI opened up their investigation, the Steele dossier was given to, to FBI agents. It was passed around. Victoria Nuland, who is a major figure in all this, and she was the key point person in Ukraine uh, back when the U.S. backed a coup in 2014. Victoria Nuland personally approved, uh, uh, gave personal approval to the F- to this FBI agent who was based in Rome, to in early July, way before the investigation opened, to personally go and meet with Christopher Steele and receive the dossier. The approval for that came from Victoria Nuland, and Nuland herself got the Steele dossier later that month and said, this has to go to the FBI. But yet they still want us to believe that opening up the investigation had nothing to do with Christopher Steele, and that's partly why they needed Mueller to make the original decision, which was based on Steele and based on fraud, look somehow credible.
2: Yeah. A a footnote about the Mueller investigation. Um, It's all pretty incestuous. Okay. The head of CrowdStrike, Sean Henry worked for 11 years for Bob Mueller at the FBI. Wow. He was his chief techie. Okay. Uh, so they had a really, really close relationship. Now, as we've already established, Sean Henry, under oath, had to confess oh, we didn't find any technical evidence that Russia or anybody else hacked those DNC emails. When did he do that? December 5th, 2017. Huh. Uh, was Mueller investigating already? Well, as you just pointed out, Aaron, he had begun investigating. Did did Sean Henry tell his old boss Bob Mueller, oh, "Hey Bob, guess what? The the, the ocean hacking is a is a crock." Well, either he did, and Mueller went ahead anyway, or he didn't. I mean, hello, talk about incest. Now, when Mueller got started, um, he already knew that uh, a lot of this stuff was 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 made up. Uh, why was it? And he continued, continued, continued. I made a, a major speech out in, in Seattle. And the, the title of it was, um, uh, Can You Handle the Truth About Gate?" And I depicted a, a scenario much like what we're seeing now. Uh, and then I said, you know, I can't really figure out why Mueller keeps, keeps going. Um, when all these revelations are already clear, at least to somebody who's looking for them. And then I realized months later, the whole idea was to keep it going through the midterm elections, <laughs> I can't say, you know? I mean, you had Trump and all the republics under a deep, deep cloud. Bob Mueller, you know, integrity personifier was, was you know, bulldogging this thing and he's going to get Trump. And and as long as he kept going through the midterms, the Democrats were likely to win big. And guess what happened? The Democrats won really big. What, what among other things, did that mean? That meant that Adam Schiff would become head of the House Intelligence Committee. That means that he could suppress Sean Henry's testimony for about two more years. So between shift and the New York Times, two and a half years for shift from the House Intelligence Committee, two more years from the Times, and 80% of the American people still believe that the Russians hacked those emails from the DNC. Part of that hurts my good friend Julian Assange because, <laughs> let me put it this way, I'll show my political uh, prejudices here. If I were to accuse somebody or some entity of doing the most heinous thing I could imagine, I would say that they were responsible for four years of Donald Trump. <laughs> so to accuse, you know, to say, look, the Russians, the Russians, without the Russian interference, uh, without Rachel, Rachel Maddow, uh, we wouldn't have had Donald Trump. It's pretty heavy stuff, okay? I say it only only a little jacqually, okay? Uh, and so that's what they pinned on him. And it went for, for five years now because it's still going. It will be interesting. It'll be really interesting if the Times and the Post can continue to avoid reporting what's going on in the court right now. And one of the neat things, if you're looking for a silver lining, is that uh, John Durham, my God, John Durham is being allowed to do his job. That surprises me. And it's a nice surprise to have because there aren't so many like it.
1: I wonder though, if Durham is being allowed to continue and we can wrap after this because I think we've covered this topic sufficiently. But I wonder if is being allowed to continue only insofar as he stays within certain bounds. So for example, right now, the theory of his case is that Michael Sussman and the Clinton campaign tricked the FBI not that the FBI was complicit in this scam, which the evidence makes pretty clear that they were. And what if Durham also goes after the CrowdStrike issue and you know makes that an issue of defrauding the US government? Because again, Michael Sussman, who's now on trial for lying to the FBI, he was the Clinton campaign's point person in hiring CrowdStrike and making its allegations right. of Russian hacking public. The contract between CrowdStrike and Perkins Coie is signed by Michael Sussman. And immediately when CrowdStrike came to the conclusion that Russia had hacked the DNC, it was Sussman who went to the FBI with CrowdStrike's supposed findings and said, you need to make this public. He was very aggressive about that. That's what's come out in in the reporting. And uh, the FBI, one of the things the FBI said initially was, well, you haven't given us any evidence. We need to see your forensics. And that took a long time. And actually, if you read reports that have come out from the Senate Intelligence Committee, they bury this, of course, but they acknowledge that people in the FBI were frustrated that what they were getting from Sussman and CrowdStrike was heavily scrubbed and redacted. And it was slow. They didn't get very much information during that same summer period that Michael Sussman was telling the FBI to go public and and just repeat our claims, forget the evidence. That's what was going on. And finally, when they did get stuff from CrowdStrike, it was CrowdStrike's forensics of the server that they got. The FBI didn't do its own investigation, which is a mystery that has never been sufficiently explained. Why did the FBI let the victim of a supposed crime conduct its own investigation. Why didn't the FBI send its own team in there? And then we also learned this from the Roger Stone case. Roger Stone's lawyers got the government to admit that the reports from CrowdStrike that, that they got were redacted by Michael Sussman. So even the information that Michael Sussman and CrowdStrike share with the government was redacted by Michael Sussman and the FBI accepted it.
2: Well, you know, it depends on who in the FBI. Now, know. Uh, James Baker, the uh, general counsel the fbi i mean he's a of a piece with james comey and andy mccabe and all these other folks my grandmother would call them the muckety mooks that ran the institution all right now uh do you think that when michael sussman said now jim <laughs> my god <laughs> i got this uh, i got this information that i as a very responsible citizen not working for anybody when i give you jim and and here it is i mean these guys are criminal but they're not stupid you know so do you think there's any chance that james baker who left in under something of a cloud himself said my god michael what what might it be and, and you're not working you're just being a really good citizen i mean so what I'm saying is, this is really dirty. It's really smelly, and it involves the whole FBI. And your point is well taken because, you know, these are the guys that could come up under indictment themselves, Comey in, in particular. And how far are they going to go? How far will they risk going? And that's a, a real question. Now, uh, with respect to outside, like uh, overseers, you know, uh, people who are supposed to be exercising overseership, I well, well, actually, they're they're not. Uh, take uh, what's his name, that uh, 105-year-old guy from Iowa, uh, Chuck Grassley. Okay, now he's just been reelected, and uh, he said in a tweet, yeah, a, a Grassley tweet. He said, uh, you know. um... When they let this little lawyer off for for f- falsifying a FISA application, sort of a felony, and he didn't get any jail, well, that's typical of the department of just us. It's in his email. Grassley, <laughs> it's typical of the department of just us, we'll cover for one another. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, coming from Matteo or McGovern, that doesn't mean anything. Coming from the guy who's supposed to be and has been for decades overseeing, really overlooking the work of the FBI, doesn't that say at all department of just us? And they will cover for each other. So it's an open question. I, th- I agree with you, Aaron. It's an open question as to how far he will be allowed to go. And I guess that depends in part uh, by the, the stamina or the strength or the courage of the current attorney general. And to me, he's just a cipher. I don't, I don't know. I'm surprised that he has let Durham do as much as he already has.
0: Well, yeah. And on that note of kind of uh, partisan factions burrowing within the institutions, CrowdStrike, as you said, was I think co founded by Sean Henry, who had previously been at the FBI, went on to be an analyst at NBC News, the parent company of MSNBC. And you have Dmitry Alperovich there as well, who is now kind of running this top um, sort of private intelligence contracting firm in Washington. He was a co founder of CrowdStrike, was a Russian emigre, very anti Putin, is providing lots of commentary, obviously, on the pro-NATO side on the Ukraine proxy war, and he had previously been hired to perform attribution on a supposed hack of Ukrainian artillery brigades. He, of course, attributed it to <laughs> Russian's GRU, and it turned out to be totally false. The Ukrainian military actually came out and said that this was completely bogus.
1: Uh, there are so so many, did Voice of America. So, did, so Yeah, so did Voice, Voice of, of America. America which is a case of yeah. U.S. state-funded media doing a better, more responsible job than private corporate media, free media. Yeah, yeah so I'd say a word, word on... Go ahead. Sorry.
0: Go, go ahead, Ray.
2: No, I was going to say, say a word about Alperovich. Um, you'll recall that this whole story began on the 15th of June, 2016, when Julian Assange said... We have emails relating to Hillary Clinton, the appending publication. Whoa! What happened the next day? Alperovich said, We have discovered Russian footprints or <laughs> fingerprints on these emails. He and CrowdStrike, 16, 17 June. So they were right on it. Uh, how did they get right on it? Well, they knew. We know when those DNC emails were, <clears throat> were leaked, were, were taken in a thumb drive or some other external storage device, that was the end of May. I think it was May 23rd and May 25th, okay? We know. So if we know, they probably knew that something had been prepared for exfiltration. Why do I say prepared for exfiltration? Because that shows up in Sean Henry's testimony on the uh, 5th of December, 2017. So we saw nothing leave electronically from the DNC, but we did see emails prepared for exfiltration. Well, the way my, my technical colleagues, Bill Binney and others say, well, it's that, pretty clear indicated that they were all put together. They were ready to be uh, put onto this uh, disc and put in a pocket and taken over across the Atlantic to wherever WikiLeaks put it out, but from the very beginning, the DNC kind of knew that they something had something had gone wrong with their computers, and some sensitive emails had been not downloaded, but copied. right? Copy is the word, and uh, and so when well, they were ready, when Julian says so we have emails relating to Hillary Clinton, and we're going to publish them soon, Alperovich and CrowdStrike were right in there. Washington Post, look it up. Sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth of of June, uh, following uh, Julian's announcement on the fifteenth of June. So this this is where it tracks back to, and they had to decide what they're going to do. But you know, I could see Hillary. I've said this before. Hillary, convenient counsel war My like, God, what are we going to do? You know, and uh, and what are we going to do about these emails? You know, they show. They stole the nomination from Bernie for Gaza. And the, the convention's seven weeks away. What, what we can do? And so, <laughs> somebody, I imagine with Robbie Mook or one of these you know sophomores like Jake some I got an idea. What's that? We'll blame it on the Russians.
3: Anybody got a better idea?
2: Okay, go with it. Now, how do I know that it happened pretty much that way? Because Jennifer Palmieri, their PR person, I heard her in person, not one-on-one, but at a meeting at Hillary and Podesta's old think tank. I heard her talk about what happened right right after the convention. She said, even at the convention, she said, you know, we were given... This word that you know. Let me, let me not paraphrase. This is this is verbatim. I copied it down and then I checked against the uh, the video that they did of this. She said, you know, it, it was a surreal experience for us. Uh, what was going on in late summer, early fall of 2016? Uh, the idea that behind the stage, the Trump campaign was coordinating with Russia to defeat Hillary Clinton was too fantastic. For people to um, for the press to process but then when we got back to Brook, this is still a quote we got back to Brooklyn then we heard mostly from sources were intelligence with the press who, who work with intelligence and, and that's where we heard things and that's where we learned about the dossier and other storylines Alpha Bank uh, that were swirling about and how to process. How do we? And along the way, the administration started confirming various pieces. Now, now, I can go on here, but she said that right in front of me. I got to ask a question before. You know who else was there? Who else was there? Um, Jonathan Weiner. Wow. <laughs> uh, look them up. Um, Jennifer Palmieri. And Weiner then, is uh, the Department. Of-
1: Weiner's a State Department guy who was uh, served under Obama. And now he's back under Biden. And Yeah, uh, but he was
2: very much, very much a Hillary, a Hillary person yeah. on on Libya and on other things like that. Yeah. Anyhow, he, re- he represented
0: tried- Bill Browder as well as a lawyer.
2: Got <laughs> hmm. really good credentials, that guy. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: Anyhow, <laughs>
2: that's what went on, and uh, you know, to hear them all admit it, to hear Jennifer, I think, actually believed this stuff. I mean, she seemed so sincere. But uh, she, I guess they thought they were all among friends. Somebody asked me whether, um, who's the head of, uh, uh, what's, whether the head of the guy who did the uh, dossier.
1: uh, Glenn Simpson or Chris Steele.
2: Yeah, yeah. Somebody called me up and said, Ray, you were at that meeting. Was was Simpson there? I said, I don't know. What does he look like? And they explained it, but I couldn't remember uh, whether he was there or not. But then, you know, all this stuff was going on, not only at the end of 2016, but the beginning of 2017. That quote was from early April. When I lived in DC, it was my privilege to attend meetings like that, if I could wangle myself an invitation. And so I did. So so to hear the PR person explain all this, how difficult it was. We went around on little golf wagons to various outlets. And they and It was hard for them to believe that the Russians would do this. But then we got back to Brooklyn, and then it all fell together. And we got not only intelligence people, but the administration itself, Clapper and others, confirmed this stuff. That's how <laughs> incestuous... That's how they took advantage of naive people like Palmieri. I still think she probably believed this stuff. I wonder if she does now.
0: Yeah. uh, Soon after the election of Donald Trump, Jennifer Palmieri wrote in the New York Times that she drove around on her little golf cart escorted by Jake Sullivan, who is then running (laughs) Hillary Clinton's campaign, is now the national security advisor overseeing the... Pot- potential start of World War III, and she told she wrote that she was urging all reporters and everyone around the Clinton camp to elevate the issue of Trump Russia above all else. So above all else, meaning above I don't know inequality, above the uh, war, blood <laughs> war, the bloodbaths on American streets, uh, mass shootings above the opioid epidemic, above the loss of jobs to uh, countries abroad and so on. All the crises America's face, America is facing uh, are superseded by Trump-Russia, according to Jake Sullivan and Jennifer Palmieri. And then we know that on the eve of Hillary's defeat, Robbie Mook and Companies sat in a room with like discarded pizza boxes. It must have been like just the saddest scene. And they decided, <laughs> let's blame Russia and WikiLeaks uh, for this whole thing. Um, there, the decision was made, and Robbie Mook, who helped fuel this com- now com- it's just completely discredited hoax of RussiaGate, was rewarded for his failure as Hillary's campaign manager this data driven little Harvard wizard Harvard gave him a defending di- digital democracy program to fight disinformation he was one of the first you know big time operatives to get a counter disinformation operation and it was funded by you know all the usual billionaire cutouts when Robbie Mook was one of the most prolific dispensers of disinformation who went on to participate in the attempt to steal the Iowa caucuses from Bernie with the uh, digital shadow app. We could talk about that forever. But I think that this is a really good segue into our next segment, which will be about this concept of disinformation. Um, I'm Max Blumenthal, and we're here with my colleague, Aaron Maté, the so-called buzzsaw He's been demonstrating that throughout this stream. And uh we got Ray McGovern, our I think he's our favorite former CIA officer, uh, former <laughs> analyst, former briefer. to
2: uh, AFK can I say one LBJ. more
0: thing? Well, we're on we're on to the next segment now. So on okay, this content, no problem. On, so we're gonna we're gonna address and, and, and then you can you can work in the you can work in anything you want here, but we're gonna address the demise. Of Nina Jankowicz. Uh, I really uh, can't say her name or think about her without holding back laughter. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security and its extraordinarily serious Secretary Alexander Mayorkas appointed a certifiable lunatic and pathological liar to lead an initiative that she apparently helped design called the Disinformation Governance Board, which was accurately described by critics as a kind of ministry of truth, because what Nina Jankowitz had been doing throughout her career, uh, aside from being this a kind of regime change operative, and we'll talk about that, is to weaponize the concept of disinformation against her foes, who happen to be the same foes of the kind of U.S. national security state and Democratic Party elite, uh, therefore defining themselves as the arbiters of truth. And she's attacked the gray zone as a spreader of disinformation. Um, we'll get into that. But I want to first just lead with a a few clips of Nina Jankowitz on her uh, farewell tour. I don't know if we're going to be hearing much from her again. Uh, <laughs> but she's really, uh, I don't know, maybe she has a career out there in Broadway or off-Broadway. But she's really trying to stoke sympathy for herself.
4: And unfortunately and ironically... We were undone exactly by a disinformation campaign coming from folks who apparently want to put our national security behind their own personal political ambition.
0: So they fell victim. So the, the disinformation governance board fell victim to disinformation. So obviously they weren't very effective. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't think of a good analogy right now, but it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And I mean, you just look at her for one second and, you can see that she just she, there's just something that isn't right
1: there. Um, Before she came out with that talking point about that she was the victim of disinformation, I wish she had thought about how that looks. If you're claiming to be the authority to police disinformation, what does it say if you can't even refute disinformation about yourself and your disinformation board? If you can't even rebut that properly, what gives you the right to and the and the license to try to refute disinformation elsewhere? If you can't even refute disinformation about yourself it just it's not it doesn't it doesn't compute i wish she had thought about that before trying to portray herself as a victim
0: now here she is again portraying herself as a victim on on chris hayes uh rachel maddow impersonator chris hayes what was the experience of being the focal point of this sort of like massive frenzy like over the last few weeks?
4: Well, it, it was really overwhelming, Chris. I mean, frankly, you know, I have prided myself over my career of being a really nuanced, uh, reasonable person. Again, as I said, I've... I've
0: We've briefed, got to play that again. You
4: know, I have prided myself over my career of being a really nuanced, uh, reasonable person. Again, as I said, I've, I've briefed and advised both Republicans and Democrats. I admire some of the steps that the Trump administration even took to combat disinformation, including Senator Rob Portman and his bills against deepfakes and, you know, funding
0: the Global Engagement Center. Okay, so what she's saying, she's trying to seem nonpartisan by saying that she works with the Uniparty. She works with the Republicans who are the same pro-war imperialist Republicans as the Democrats. And she's supported their effort to start a domestic propaganda uh, cutout within the State Department called the Global Engagement Center. So that doesn't really stand at odds with the portrayal of her as a professional propagandist
4: State Department. So to say that I'm just a partisan actor was was wildly out of context. And then beyond that, it wasn't just, you know, these mischaracterizations of, of my work, but it was death threats against my family. Over the last three weeks, I have maybe had one today, or two days I didn't report a violent threat, something like, we're coming like, for you and your family, you and your family should, should, should be sent to Russia to be killed. To be killed. Encourage <laughs> me and <laughs> <be killed>. <laughs> me <laughs> to That sounds
0: like what she said about us, but...
4: Um, all <laughs> of those have been forwarded <laughs> to the Department of Homeland Security. Of Homeland Security. <laughs> security, uh, service security services yeah, and you know that's not, that's uh, not uh something that is american that is not how is we how should be acting, should be when, acting we when we have disagreements about policy in this country this i think country. we need think to learn how to be adults in, be adults room. in the room um, and I, don't um and I don't have time for, for childishness I'm, I'm not going to let it silence me i'm going to go forward and continue building awareness about this threat
0: so yeah we have to be adults in the room we'll see we'll see what an adult what kind of an adult she is uh but one of the most uh Upsetting components of this whole Nina Jankowitz saga was how not only the New York Times but the Washington Post went to bat for her and defended her. And of course, it was up to Taylor Lorenz, who's this kind of professional kind of uh, her, her her whole career has been punching down and defending established power. And that's what she did with Nina Jankowitz, where she portrayed all the criticism. Of Nina Jankowitz as a right-wing campaign of hatred and disinformation. As if there were not people on the left or anti-war critics who had pointed out, for example, us that Nina Jankowitz was attacking us with disinformation. And I'll just throw up like one, one uh example of that on screen. But here's Nina Jankowitz tweeting in September, on September 1st, 2020, gray zone creates their own hysteria and, and spreads incredibly damaging disinformation. It calls popular protests, color revolutions. Oh my God, you know, they call themselves color revolutions. Have you ever heard of the orange revolution? That wasn't us, we didn't make it up. The tulip revolution, whatever they, that, that was this their thing, that was your thing. And papers over Stalinist crimes against humanity. They are not a reputable source on, quote, unquote, countering Russian hysteria. Um, And she subsequently accused us, and Aaron, you can address this, of being part of a Russian influence operation without any evidence whatsoever. Um, So she straight up smeared us. I mean, that's, that's a straight up libel. She's also spread the phony, now completely discredited lie that the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian disinformation plant. She has actually been a member of the Integrity Initiative, which was itself a disinformation operation run by British military intelligence to penetrate the media and spread Russia hysteria to drive military budgets up in preparation for the kind of war with Russia that's taking place in Ukraine. And she has blocked all of us preemptively. I I didn't even know she'd said that about us until she was appointed to the DH chess board. so she preemptively blocked us while attacking us, and says that she's uh, she's tough, she can take it. Um, I mean, there's just so many levels of fraud and dishonesty here. Uh, either of you can jump in and address this if you want, and then we can put up some more examples on we can we can display some more examples of disinformation from the disin the supposed counter disinformation experts.
2: The problem here, uh, of course, is that no one is ever held accountable. You can slander people, you can try to ostracize them, you can put them or try to put them in jail for the rest of their lives for telling the truth, as you're doing with Julian Assange, and no one is held accountable. Uh, it goes back uh, in, my, in my gaze here to Iraq. Um, Fred Hyatt. Now, he died six months ago, and people say you're not supposed to say anything bad about the dead. Uh, I'm going to claim a waiver here. He was up page editor for the Washington Post before Iraq. Uh, he ran about 100 articles saying there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Flat fact. And uh, actually, after they were, it was discovered, there were none. He's up at the Columbia School of Journalism, and he's relaxed. He's had a little drink there, and, and, and then one of the students says, now, uh, Mr. Fred Hyatt, um, you you kept saying that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before the war. Uh, you asserted that as flat fact. All your contributors said, so w- w- what, what are we to make of that? And Hyatt looked down, and he said, well, he said, um, you know, um if it wasn't true that there were wmd in iraq we probably shouldn't have said there were (laughs) now bob perry told me that and it's in the columbia school review magazine and when bob says you know ray as i recall it's sort of a cardinal principle of journalism if something's not really true you're not supposed to say that it's True, sure. Do you get that right? Yeah. So this is kind of a ludicrous example and a sad example because you know most people say, "Well, Hyatt must have been fired after that uh, that uh, adventurism or that adventure." Uh, but no, no. That was 2002. He remained as head of the op-ed page in the Washington Post until he died in 2001. So it's a long time to stay in, in place. Why he's rewarded? He was so. so all I'm saying is that there's got to be some way, and maybe maybe uh, Durham, uh, John Durham, the special prosecutor, uh, will be able to adduce enough facts here that at least some of these journalists who are in bed with uh, the Comeys and the, and the Andy McCabes and the John Brennan's of this world that they will not be able to escape. Uh, being held accountable. I'm not holding my breath, but let's give that a chance.
0: Well, Fred Hyatt was one of the worst purveyors of pro-war disinformation. The Washington Post op-ed editorial board under his watch supported every war, every regime change operation, every effort to sanction independent countries in the global south. It was just the most reliable, never critical voice of the war state and also fred hyatt basically hosted a like de facto parlor room of neocons at the editorial board just every week just churning out the propaganda so uh, uh, he of course he's rewarded for a job well done the same way jeffrey goldberg was who helped uh provide disinformation about Saddam Hussein's connection to Al-Qaeda on two occasions. his propaganda, The propaganda he published in The New Yorker was cited by none other than Dick Cheney. Then, during the Obama era, <laughs> Jeffrey Goldberg was spreading Netanyahu's disinformation. He was a channel for disinformation for Netanyahu, that Israel was due to attack Iran at any minute unless the U.S. would actually strike the reactor at Natanz and, and start attacking Iran because, of course, Israel mm. couldn't do it. Israel didn't have the capacity. So Jeffrey Goldberg's role was to spread disinformation, and he was appointed by billionaire David Bradley as editor-in-chief of The Atlantic to continue doing that job. So Nina Jankowicz comes from that class, Aaron. Uh, what was your reaction to her appointment and her demise?
1: Well, what I'm worried about is because she was such a clownish, ridiculous figure that her own personal quirks are going to overshadow the the real implications of what of her project. And the project remains. Michael Chertoff, former DHS Secretary under Bush, he's been appointed now basically as the de facto head of this disinformation board as they figure out what to do with it. And Nina Jankowicz, when she would talk about what she wanted to do with it, her proposals included she wanted to be able to... Um, Give certain users on Twitter, people like her, the power to edit, to edit other people's tweets, so for to provide context that she yeah, deemed to be missing. Let
0: me let me let me play a clip of her um, saying that because it's really interesting. But this is from the New York Times article on with the most hilarious headline: "A panel to combat disinformation becomes a victim of it," um, which. <laughs> I mean, it just says so much, including that the New York Times sees the definition of disinformation as anything that upends the objectives of the establishment or the security state. But Chertoff is mentioned sort of as a footnote here. Um, I mean, this is amazing that Michael Chertoff has been appointed by the Biden administration to reconstruct the ministry of truth uh, you know, Ray or Aaron, who is, who is Michael Chertoff? What is wrong with this name here? I think we, we can't just gloss that over.
2: Well, he had, he headed up the department of Homeland security himself if, if memory serves. Um, uh, he, he was uh, guilty of all kinds of uh, malfeasance and misfeasance and he made a lot of money. I think, uh, yeah, he decided that he'd go into the business of making, uh, uh, detectors for for airports, right? <laughs> and right. made a fortune on that kind of stuff. I mean, the guy is typical of uh, what you run into at that level in Washington. Um, and to see him now, as you point out, uh, in a position of, uh, of responsibility to take this this cudgel up and make it work, and be able to uh, to edit our our tweets. <laughs> God, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard to believe, but more easy to believe as the years go by.
0: Yeah, uh, I, uh, Michael Chertoff was a supporter of torture. He helped uh, lie the U.S. into the war in Iraq, one of the greatest disinformation campaigns in history. As you mentioned, he uh, the Chertoff group was basically uh, a lobbying firm for security. Contractors or manufacturers of security devices like a uh, a radiation emitting uh, substitute for the old fashioned metal detector as airports began to be hyper securitized after 9-11. So, I mean, he was basically advancing major conflicts of interest in the name of security. He's a deeply corrupt individual and the Department of Homeland Security, I don't even know why it exists. It's just a perfect example of the blob. Um, but here's an example, here's the the um, clip that Aaron was referring to, where Nina Jankowitz calls for trustworthy people to essentially be able to edit other people's tweets.
3: Um, and I am eligible for it because I'm verified but there are a lot of people who shouldn't be verified who aren't, you know, legit, in my opinion. I mean, they are real people, but they're not um, trustworthy. <laughs> anyway, so verified people and, um, essentially start to edit Twitter the, the same sort of way that Wikipedia is, so they can add context to certain tweets. Um, so just as a easy example, not from any political standpoint, if President Trump were still on Twitter and tweeted a claim about voter fraud, Someone could add context from one of the 60 lawsuits uh, that went through the court or uh, something that an election official in one of the states said, perhaps your own secretary of state uh, and and his news conferences, something like that, adding context so that people um, have a fuller picture rather than just an individual claim on a tweet.
0: By the way, I love the lady sitting alone. Um, I love the lady sitting alone in the middle in a room completely by herself with a mask on, uh, or two of them. I, I don't know if you can catch anything <laughs> from digital disinformation. Um, but uh, I mean, what, what, here, where, where's Aaron? Aaron's. Aaron, what was wrong with her statement? I mean,
1: what's wrong I mean, with that? This is- I mean, this is her agenda. She wants to be able to silence dissenting voices. And I don't think this plan of, for example, being able to edit other people's tweets and you know uh, take away people's verification, all that stuff, I don't think it goes away with her. I think this is the new playbook. Um, Consortium News just today uh, has an article out where they say that the Victoria Nuland phone call, uh, a recording of the Victoria Nuland phone call where she's caught plotting with the US ambassador to Ukraine on installing the next Ukrainian government uh, back right before the coup of 2014. The video of that has been removed from YouTube entirely. The the fullest version of that clip along with the transcript, YouTube just pulled it uh, offline today. And um, this to me is where we're headed. You know, Nina Janko wants to be able to do stuff like this. Police other people's tweets, uh, take them, you know, ban them obviously. So many so many Dissenting voices on the Ukraine proxy war have just been taken off of Twitter. Uh, she's talked about us as if we're part of a Russian uh, influence operation, which is a complete obvious fabrication. She has talked about, um, while meanwhile, you know, promoting claims that actually cover up war crimes. This isn't just about policing dissenting voices. This also is about uh, covering up for crimes. Like, for example, the one i'm I'm particularly occupied with is Duma. April 2018, where Syria was accused of a chemical attack, and then the U.S., France, and Britain bombed Syria based on that on that allegation, and then the OPCW, the world's top chemical weapons watchdog, released a report about a year later aligning with the U.S.-led narrative that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack, but then we got these leaks from the actual OPCW inspectors who went on the ground in Douma, and those leaks showed us that these inspectors found no evidence of a chemical attack, but their investigation was censored and doctored, and so we were never meant to see what these inspectors had actually found. And people like Nina Jankowicz has promoted the official narrative on Duma, which essentially is covering up for how these people in Duma were really killed, were, were really killed, because if it wasn't a chemical attack, then they must have died in some other way. And they must have been killed or their bodies must have been used by the insurgents who put out these videos falsely claiming that it was a chemical attack to cover up for the fact that they were staging one. And so she's called for... Um, people that challenge that basically report on the OPCW leaks like we do at the gray zone. She's essentially called for us to be censored, And that's what I'm concerned about is that since these leaks, like those of the OPCW are so damning, are we going to get to a point where we're not even allowed to discuss them on social media? I mean, that's if the vision of people like her is carried forward, that's the scenario that we're headed towards. I think. Well, just to,
0: just to, about that, about the clip of Nina Jankowitz calling for the editing of Twitter by trustworthy people. This is how Wikipedia functions as a bulletin board and defamation site for the establishment, the kind of people gathered right now in Davos at the World Economic Forum, as well as the national security elite. You can just go take a look at my Wikipedia page and who's editing it. Someone Ray might be familiar with. Uh, and I I want to say his name, but I don't think you know. There's even a pronoun I can put before a uh, what it appears to be an intelligence operation. It's some thing called Philip Cross that is allowed by Wikipedia to edit over fifty percent of my page and just vandalize it and make me look like uh, you know the worst Holocaust denier who's ever lived. Not just like an okay Holocaust denier, but the worst Holocaust <laughs> denier. The worst. <laughs> Liar, all of my achievements have been removed. Anyone who thinks like us gets vandalized by Philip Cross. And these editors are a cartel of centrist extremists who are empowered by Jimmy Wales, the CEO of Wikipedia, and the Wikimedia Foundation, which is funded by various, you know, intelligence and national security state cutouts. Jimmy Wales is on the board of an organization called NewsGuard. And NewsGuard approached the gray zone. Many of you watching this might be familiar with my response to them. And I'll I'll put up their entry. We just got their, their article on us. They're an organization that includes Tom Ridge, the first DHS director on their board, uh, alongside Michael Hayden, someone I'm sure Ray has a lot to say about, uh, former CIA and NSA director, and uh, former uh head of the State Department Global Engagement Center, Richard Stengel, who described himself as the U.S. chief propagandist. And what they do is they do media ratings where they give you a green or red label based on their assessment of your trustworthiness. Of course, Somehow they managed to give CNN a green label and the Washington Post and all of our uh, truthy friends. And we just got the the red label that I expected. So when they approached me, I said, I can't wait to get your red label. It will be a red badge of honor for me uh, because you're a collection of spooks, war criminals, and pathological liars who are responsible for some of the worst disinformation campaigns that have killed millions of people around the world. I would be happy to have you denigrate us. So I got their assessment. And their assessment of us really was a window into the mindset of the people who claim to be fighting disinformation. They said that the worst thing about the gray zone was that we lie. We just don't tell the truth because we claim that what happened in Ukraine between 2013 and 2014 that saw a change in government was a U.S.-backed regime change operation or even a coup. So that's our first lie. They said that we challenge the official OPCW version of Duma, the Duma attack in April 2018 uh, and point to uh, additional versions of the events by dissenters from within the OPCW. So that's another lie. And that we uh, question the U.S. role in Venezuela and on and on and on. So any divergence from the official national security state's version of major geopolitical events makes you a liar, according to NewsGuard. And therefore, we will not be allowed on any Microsoft produced computer, which is in public libraries because they have a deal with NewsGuard and NewsGuard is actually funded by Microsoft, as well as the notorious truth spreaders at the Department of Defense, which has contributed $800,000 to NewsGuard. So we got a rating of something like 17.5 out of 100, a massive F from these people, we are red. Uh, but this is the beginning of a process and an attempt to deplatform the gray zone. Ray, have you encountered any sort of attempts to denigrate your reputation by these same elements? Uh, do you, What do you think of your own Wikipedia page?
2: Well, you know, I've uh, not looked at my own Wikipedia page for seven, eight years. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's been, uh, when head- I saw what they put up about Russiagate, I said, well, you know, this is... This is a joke. Anybody who wants to know something about me should go to RayMcGovern.com or I do have a my website where I have a bio. Uh, and if they're not serious, they can believe uh, what Wiki, uh, Wikipedia says. You know, it's very, very troubling. I mean, uh, we can laugh and all that. And maybe I'm getting a little bit. Uh, well, what they say about me, uh, what they say about me is the first instance true they say ah he's an old guy (laughs) okay all right i'm an old guy all right i'm still more compass i claim than many other people around including the president of the united states but i'm an old guy so then they say so what can he know he hasn't had access to classified information for years and years okay as if as if you can't really know anything or analyze anything unless you have access to classified information now very briefly my favorite story about that is when bill casey came in to head up the cia under ronald reagan the first thing he said at the first cabinet meeting is says, you know i just in for a big surprise i found out that Eighty percent of the information used by my Russian analysts is from open sources from newspapers and books and and speeches. (laughs) My God, got to be some spies to be worth anything. (laughs) Well, he learned gradually, but 80 percent of the information we needed was available from from open sources. Every now and then, it was nice to have an intercept or a, a satellite photo that uh, that confirmed what you had already reasoned to. So you know what you can glean from from the internet or from anywhere. Now it's ninety percent. Do do I lust for a, for an intercept conversation? Every now and then, I would really like to have it, but I usually get it from Aaron or from you in some other form. So. In other words, the way they try to denigrate me is to say, number one, he's an old guy. That happens to be true. Number two, they say, well, he can't possibly make any judgments uh, without access to uh, classified information. And of course, as we've discussed Russiagate, uh, we we haven't talked about Afghanistan. And we wrote an article to Obama saying once he decided to bow to the wishes of the military and Bobby Gates, uh, we said... uh, Welcome to our welcome to Vietnam, Mr. President. Okay, and that was really early on. So you can get you can get if you have a, if you have the persistence and if you have basic tools of media analysis, you can make cogent judgments based on what's available. And we, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, stand by our record. And um, and all I can say is that uh, the challenge is to be able to find some way to rebut people who accuse Aaron of disagreeing with what the UN said or disagreeing with what people said about Duma. Well, you know, every now and then you can bring the principles of physics to bear on these things. And that's what those honest OPCW um, inspectors did. And not only they, but Ted Postal. And, you know, if, if it defies the laws of physics, that's probably not true. Right? And not only that, but RussiaGate—the the the, the hacking—defied laws of physics, as we pointed out on December twelfth, two thousand and sixteen, very early on. So, it's uh, people are very credulous, and when they like Ra- Rachel Maddow and uh, that guy, what's his name—the fellow who was uh, uh, Chris Hayes, you know. <laughs> I mean, I thought I saw him suppressing a smile, barely. Uh, but you know, he's he's bright enough to know better, and they do it anyway, and that's what makes an impact on the people who make judgments to the degree they make judgments.
0: Well, he's speaking crazy. Of making
1: judgments, go ahead. Man. Go ahead, Aaron. Gonna say, no, I was going to say.
0: You were going to say. I was
1: on the issue of of, of making judgments. Max, you mentioned Venezuela before, and what I would say to NewsGuard for you know t- attacking us for how we cover Venezuela is read Mark Esper's new book. Uh, he was Trump's defense secretary. His memoir is crazy. Some of the stuff he talks about. So at the time of the coup, the Gray Zone was on the ground in Venezuela, pointing out that the Trump administration was behind a coup. Juan Guaido was a puppet, and you know we were talking about these attacks going on on civilian infrastructure, looking pretty suspicious and looking like that's a part of a U.S. effort. To destabilize Venezuela and you know care, you know push for the overthrow of Maduro. Well, what does Mark Esper say in his new book? He says that there were discussions inside the White House of carrying out attacks on Venezuelan civilian infrastructure, uh, mil- you know military attacks. Even there was talk even of an invasion. Juan Guaido asked Trump to invade, and Trump said to him like, "Wouldn't it be better if you guys did it? We just support you." And Juan Guaido was like, "You know what? No, it'd be a lot quicker and easier if you guys did it." And Esper says, <laughs> Esper says there were even discussions of establishing a Contra-like dirty war, the same thing that the Reagan administration did in Nicaragua. There were discussions, which Esper appeared to support, of uh, organizing a Contra army to terrorize Venezuelan civilians. So all the things that we talked about or were speculating about back then proved to be corroborated later on by the people who were carrying out the policies. At Esper's book has gotten a lot of attention, but not for that, which to me is the most explosive part. And there's also another thing, you know, Max, the first time I heard of your reporting was back in 2005 or something. And that was when you did a long series about the U.S. role in the coup in Haiti. And I was, particular, I was particularly interested in that because that's how I basically started out in journalism is covering Canada's role in the February 2004 overthrow of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And at the time, all sorts of people would attack us for, you know, uh, saying that this was a coup, the US was central, centrally involved. And what just happened in, in the New York Times? There was that long series on how much you know Western colonial powers have stolen from Haiti, especially France and the US. And buried at the bottom is an admission by the former French ambassador to Haiti at the time, who says, Yes, this was a coup orchestrated by the Bush administration. And oh, so I that's coming what? This is this is now 18 years later? Yeah. Um, but the truth eventually gets out, you know, eventually after many years, but the problem we face is that we're actually saying the truth at the time that it's happening. And that's why people want to, want to shut us up is because it can be said years after the fact, you you can do sort of like nostalgia adversarial journalism and talk about crimes of the past when they're actually happening. That's a no, no.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, one last point of, uh, someone trying to shut us up, you tweeted about this, um, that I want you to address, Aaron, is uh the British Trotskyist Paul Mason, who basically called for state action against us because we don't tow the party line on the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, he named us. He called us out and he said, we need state action to challenge the hate speech, lies, and threats generated by the far right and pro-Kremlin left. Um I don't know what hate speech we're spreading. Uh, I don't know who we're threatening. I guess we're threatening his worldview. He weirdly stopped uh, blocking me and started following me around. This time, I don't know if he has something planned or or, or, or he, he's he's up to something. But it's it's very and un- this is a very explicit call f- to the manager uh, to shut us down just because of our opinions, not because we're spreading disinformation.
1: Yeah, and I'd love to know what he wants, as you say. It'd be great if he could explain what we are saying that is false and that is hate speech. They never do. They call us names and they call for us to be silenced, but they don't lay out why we're allegedly saying anything wrong, because the point is they can't. They can't challenge us on the facts, so they need to come up with claims about us that were linked to Russia or some other bad guy state and whatever else. And yeah, I wish Paul Mason was here to explain for himself what state action he wants to take against this, because I invited him on on my show pushback to discuss it with me, but he declined, but um, it'd be great to know what kind of state action he wants to see taken. And uh, maybe he'll explain more, but yeah, this is, and and the funny thing about him is he claims to be on the left while he's leading wars and he's leading rallies inside of the UK where he lives in favor of the proxy war in Ukraine. He wants to arm Ukraine even more. And he wants to silence us for providing a dissenting point of view on that.
0: Yeah. He led one of the most, Pathetic scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I got to put this up here. Was this? Yeah. No, this wasn't it. This is some other rally. Uh, but Paul Mason led a basically a pro-war rally in the streets of London. Michael Tracy covered it. It was hilarious. Um, and he obviously got upset because we mocked him. He's so, just so petulant and petty that he's calling for the state to deplatform us and it, uh, you inviting him to debate really speaks to another trend which is the the kind of drive-by shootings that these people carry out against their targets they never as ray mentioned like with his intelligence colleagues people from the intelligence world they never want to get in the room and actually debate because they will get intellectually curb stomped and so and 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 Why, why would you debate us? I mean, why, why would you, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get exposed and you basically have a platform in mainstream media where none of us are allowed to speak. None of us are allowed to talk back. So why would you expose yourself? So you wouldn't. So that, that, that's the kind of democracy they want to have. where all dissenting voices are censored, deemed disinformation and hate speech. And they're the only ones who get to talk. They're real (coughs) authoritarians. Um, moving Ray, to, the,
1: yeah. Well, I want to ask Ray quickly. I'm curious, Ray, for your reflections on your your personal experience with media. You used to be prominently featured. I remember, um, yeah. During uh, Donald Rumsfeld gave a speech, I think it was in Atlanta, and you confronted him in the audience. And when you did, and there was video of that. And when you did that, that was like top news on MSNBC. Keith Olbermann was the anchor at the time. He prominently featured it. Um, I met you through Democracy Now, where you used to consistently appear. I'm curious about your own experience with mainstream media and how um, how it's evolved to where it is today and whether you think there's less space today allowed for dissent or more.
2: There's less space for sure. Um, that mini debate with Rumsfeld, which took four minutes, it was in Atlanta on the 4th of May, 2006. Now, there were a whole confluence of circumstances that made that possible for me to be on TV that night. First of all, it was at noon, early enough. Second of all, it was on CNN. It was on C-SPAN. It was captured live. Um, Third of all, uh, it was uh, consistent with what a couple of people had done a couple of months before challenging Rumsfeld. And fourth of all, I was, I was allowed not to be uh, dragged out screaming. Uh, I was allowed to conduct a sensible debate. Now, um, that made it so that CNN had it, and CNN was going to run it. Therefore, its competitors needed to run it as well because it was news. They had enough time to check it out, <clears throat> and they did. Old woman in those days was pretty good, and he did check it out and saw that what rumpstall was saying was untrue and what I said was true. Uh, but that was a a unique set of circumstances where they just couldn't avoid having me on. In in the event, well, let me just say, um, what's his name? Anderson Cooper. He calls me up. It's really, I'm still trying to get out of this auditorium. I said, Mr. McGovern. I said, Yeah. He oh, Hunter. This is Anderson Cooper. I'd like to have it on my show tonight, but I want to ask you a question. I said, What was that? He said, Well, weren't you uh, like, um, weren't you afraid? And I thought for a second. I said, Wait a second. This is the heir to the Vanderbilt fortune. This is the pretty boy on CNN. I'm going to have some fun here. I said. I know Anderson, actually, you know, I had done a lot of homework and I knew that if I got a chance to ask a I was going to ask him real question. I, it was a real high. I, I, oh, Anderson, you might want to try to do that sometime. Uh, get some pre- prepared questions that mean something. and, and You know, <laughs> you'll find it's a real high. you try that. Okay. Now, I thought that I would have embarrassed Anderson Cooper. Not so. I get on his show two hours later. What does he start with? Well, mr movern uh, weren't you afraid i mean these journalists don't <laughs> have any idea about don't be afraid it's our yeah. tradition not to be afraid so all i'm yeah. saying here is that was a unique set of circumstances that's the only time i got on uh that i can remember that i got on uh, all the networks that now almost all of them and even then they tried to tilt it around uh, Paul is on says, so how long have you had this animus toward the secretary of defense? <laughs> so that's the way that ran.
0: <laughs> well, we actually have that clip right now, and I want to play it uh, so we can segue into the next topic uh, because I need to take a 30 second break. Uh, Ray, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and staying with us. Uh, let's watch Most Ray more. McGovern. Let's watch Ray McGovern own Donald Rumsfeld. And this is at a different time when sage voices like his were actually allowed on mainstream media, got interviewed by people. Um, I don't know if you can call him a journalist, Ray, but Anderson Cooper had you on. We know who he's afraid of. He's afraid of those who are responsible for fueling his ambitions, the executives at CNN. Um, But you obviously weren't afraid here. And this was a totally different time. When pe- hundreds of thousands of people were marching against Bush's Republican war, and it's before, I guess, flash forward uh, fifteen years or so, and George W. Bush has been rehabilitated, and uh, the only people holding him accountable are Russian pranksters impersonating Zelensky. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: These, of course, within the speech, came a few protesters. We don't want to hear.
5: And so I would like to, to ask you to be upfront with the American people. Why did you lie to get us into a war that was not necessary and that has caused these kinds of casualties? Yeah. Why? Well,
6: first of all, I, I haven't lied. I did not lie then. Colin Powell didn't lie. He spent weeks and weeks with the Central Intelligence Agency people and prepared a presentation that I know he believed was accurate. And he presented that to the United Nations. The President spent weeks and weeks with the Central Intelligence people. And he went to the American people and made a presentation. I'm not in the intelligence business. They gave the world their honest opinion. It appears that there were not weapons of mass destruction there.
5: You said you knew where they were.
6: I did not. I said I knew where suspect sites were, and we were. You said you
5: knew where they were near or, Chikrit, near Baghdad, and northeast, south, and west of there. Those are your words. My words,
6: my words were that. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let them stay one second. Just a second. you're getting plenty of play sir
5: i just like an honest
6: answer i'm giving it to you we're
5: talking about lies and you're, you're well, an allegation that there was bulletproof evidence of ties between al-qaeda and iraq was that a lie
6: Zar- or are you misled zarqawi was in baghdad during the pre-war period that is a
0: fact he, he was not
6: Zarqawi?
5: He was in the north of Iraq in a place where Saddam Hussein had no rule. He was also also in Baghdad. Yeah, when he needed to go to the hospital. Come on, these people aren't idiots. They know the story.
6: You are... Let me me give you an example. It's easy for you to make a charge, um, but why do you think that the men and women in uniform, every day when they came out of Kuwait and went into Iraq, put on chemical weapon protective suits because they liked the uh, the style. They honestly believed that there were chemical weapons Saddam Hussein had used chemical weapons on his own people previously. He'd used them on his neighbor, the Iranians, and they believed he had those With Rumsfeld's weapons. With Rumsfeld help. We believed <laughs> yeah. he had those weapons. That's what we call it non It doesn't matter what the troops right, believe. I think, it I think what you
5: believe. I think, Mr. Secretary, the debate is over. We have other questions. Okay. Courtesy to the, your audience.
0: How come no one does that anymore? I mean,
1: but by the way, look, we could do a whole show of just a clips uh, eclipse of Ray confronting these former officials. You've also confronted <laughs> Jim Clapper, right, Ray? That Hillary already, Clinton. You know, that
2: what- Hillary. Yeah. Well, Hillary I didn't say anything. I got wrapped up anyway, spent the night in they, jail. They, they,
0: they, they, they injured you in that event. Yeah, you
2: know, they, that was, well, you know, I've been injured. Uh, I've been appealing to people my age. Um, there's a sympathy factor in in play here. Uh, they don't Americans don't like old people to get beat up, um, and so I've been encouraging my colleagues of a certain age to put their bodies into it. Uh, young people, yeah, they get beat up; they have it coming to them. Old people, not so much. And so I think it's come to that. I, I'm saying that in all seriousness. Uh, we can complain and we can we can worry about being deflat platformed, uh, but i would just invoke one other thing and that is what i call the the noah principle no more no more awards for predicting rain awards only for building arcs we have to be smart enough and i think we are we have to be smart enough to figure out how to platform ourselves forever to build the kind of arc that people will be attracted to and see as an alternative source of information. I dare say that I, I've thought for a long time that the, the fault in our inability to do that is, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Let's do it. Let's figure out a way to do the kinds of things that Julian Assange showed us could be done to good effect. Thanks a lot for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Or as they say in French.
0: Thank you so much, Ray. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure, and we always learn so much. Um, and we will carry on your tradition of grilling the greatest spreaders of disinformation who happen to be in our national security state. So thank you for leading the way. And thanks for being so generous with your time. Everyone can find Ray at uh, Ray McGovern on Twitter.
2: Yeah, and raymcgovern.com is my website.
0: Great. We'll look for you there. Thanks again for joining us, Ray.
1: Thank you, Ray. And Thank we're gonna you, Ray, thanks uh, for we're having we're me.
0: Gonna, we're gonna uh, get one more thing off our chest before we go. Um, we just had a very momentous vote in the Senate in Washington. Last week, and they voted to give lots of your money if you're an American citizen and you're watching this or you're in the U.S. and paying taxes, a lot of your money to the Beltway bandits, to the intelligence, so called intelligence community, which is neither communal nor intelligent, to the national security state and to defense contractors to build more McMansions in suburban Northern Virginia and bring more. Uh, gentrifiers into Washington to live in these loft style drone boxes that are popping up everywhere around the city. It's $40 billion to Ukraine, but it's not going much of it won't go to Ukraine. It goes straight back here. And is military Keynesianism fueling the kind of economy that has cropped up. Since 9-11, a permanent war economy. The defense budget is over $800 billion a year. Biden has proposed a record defense budget. And the Ukraine proxy war has replaced Afghanistan as the justification to meet all of the bureaucratic priorities of the national security state. It is a disgusting and scandalous aid package framed by mainstream media as A simple measure to, quote unquote, help Ukrainians. It will not help any Ukrainian unless those Ukrainians all want to die in a lost cause fighting to maintain a nationalist and oligarchic post Maidan regime in Kiev with missiles, advanced missile systems pointing at Moscow. It is a aid package that ensures the U.S. goal or advances the U.S. goal of fighting to the last Ukrainian, but seems to do nothing for U.S. national security. And we would expect some resistance to this bill, wouldn't we? We would expect resistance from the kind of people who say that they oppose corruption, that they oppose bloated defense budgets that they oppose inequality, and yet the, the opposition came from the America First crowd. It came from figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, who outflanked from the anti-war left, the squad, the progressive squad, self-proclaimed socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Jamal Bowman, who has proclaimed that he's against colonialism and white supremacy. Sending weapons into the arms of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, into the arms of the neo-Nazi IDAR Battalion, and other bloodstained paramilitary war criminals like the Georgian Legion, which has been filmed executing wounded Russian soldiers in the field. The squad voted for all of this, and they will not explain their votes to the public. And in the most upsetting instance... Of capitulation before the war state, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, self-proclaimed socialist, voted for the $40 billion. Uh, Before I bring in Aaron, let's just play a clip that I think sets the background for Bernie Sanders rolling over before the war state and not only caving to it, but advancing one of the most pernicious narratives that's helped lead us to the point we're at today in this Ukraine proxy war.
2: President, I rise uh, to speak about a matter of extraordinary importance to the future of American democracy and, in fact, democracies
1: all over the world. Uh, At the Helsinki Summit on Monday, President Trump
2: embarrassed our country, undermined American values, and openly sided with Russia's authoritarian leader, Vladimir Putin, against the U.S. intelligence community's <laughs>
0: unanimous assessment that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential he sided against the intelligence community, says Bernie. So, Aaron, what's what's your reaction to Bernie Sanders voting to this forty billion? Did you expect him to do it?
1: Yeah, and you're muted. Sorry. Based on clips like that, I should have expected it, but I, I I was shocked. I couldn't believe it because this is such an easy case. Build Back Better has been completely sidelined. Now a massive package with no debate is being rushed through to fund the military industrial complex, uh, intensifying the U.S. role in a proxy war. Bernie Sanders has always claimed to be anti-war. He voted against the Iraq war. That's what helped distinguish him in the 2016 and 2020 primaries from his opponents. So no, I did not think, and and this is me being naive, that Bernie would go and vote for this huge gift to the military industrial complex and this huge escalation of a very dangerous proxy war. I did not think bernie was that craven but i was wrong and the fact that he went along with russiagate for so many years even though russiagate was used to destroy him and everything he cares about i mean let's recall how russiagate began um you know 2016 should have ended the hillary clinton wing of the party they lost to a reality tv show host and they were caught conspiring against bernie sanders bernie was poised to take the reins to present voters with a genuine alternative to the fake populism that Trump had given them, tapping into discontent over a failed neoliberal system. And also, the Clinton wing was caught plotting against him, so there's no need for him to pretend to play nice. But what did he do? When the Clinton campaign and their allies came up with the Russiagate scam, as we talked about earlier, Bernie, instead of calling it out, he played along with it. And instead of focusing on the contents of the emails that showed massive corruption and bias against him, Bernie played along with the Hillary Clinton campaign's narrative that it was Russia that did it. And that's what we should be concerned about to the point where he introduced that resolution. You played the clip of it of him going on the House uh, on the Senate floor. And that resolution basically would force Senate members to accept the claims of the U.S. intelligence community, even though, of course, those claims have since been shown to be incredibly dubious and I think completely false. But basically, he was so committed to propping up the narrative of the people that tried to destroy him that he introduced a measure that would force people to basically pledge their loyalty to those allegations and the intelligence officials who generated them. So no surprise now that the latest iteration of Russiagate is the Ukraine proxy war. I mean, there's a direct link between using Russiagate to box in Trump to whatever extent he was serious about getting along with Russia. Russiagate was very successful in undermining that. Lindsey Graham and John McCain, you know, went to Ukraine in late 2016 and vowed that 2017 Will be the year of offense and one of their top priorities was getting trump to authorize weapon shipments to ukraine that obama would not send because obama apparently didn't want to further inflame the proxy war that he started and also didn't want to arm neo-nazis and with trump facing allegations that he's a russian asset showing that he's willing to send weapons to ukraine was a great way to dispel that and so he did he did send those weapons and that helped escalate this proxy war and bring us to the state that we're in today And so Bernie Sanders played along with this from the start. And so, no surprise, I guess, that he's now going along with it, even when it means, you know, at the worst end of the many catastrophes that have come from this Ukraine proxy war, even if it means a nuclear holocaust, he's even willing to take that risk if he can show his fidelity to the Russia Gate narrative. It's it's sad to say the least. Yeah.
0: Well, it's infuriating, Uh, shows you. Where U.S. the U.S. left is, I mean, there, there there was a lot of belly aching on the U.S. left uh, among a lot of like left influencers over Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, standing up and issuing these bold statements denouncing the forty billion as a money laundering scam that will only escalate a insane proxy war, while the squad went along with it. And it really shows kind of like the dead end politics of the U.S. left because they're so focused as particularly the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, on endorsing candidates and getting behind candidates who will run as Democrats and go into Congress and then advance their agenda. And what did they get? They got a rubber stamp for the war state as the DSA issued a pretty good statement on uh, the need to abolish NATO and NATO's malignant malicious role in fueling conflict in Eastern Europe. Uh, So it's just words from the DSA. And when it comes down to it, the people they endorse who are still members of their organization, like AOC, I think Chris Hayes is also a member of the DSA. They don't get kicked out. They don't do anything to them. So as long as they're continuing to be, see the democratic party as a host body for their socialist delusions uh, or their socialist dreams, this is what they're going to get. Um, meanwhile, you can say whatever you want about these America first characters. Uh, I mean, some of them are just cartoonish, but they're actually representing they voted the against baby
1: formula. They voted against, yeah. I formula.
0: mean, they voted against a bill to, you know, <laughs> subsidize baby formula as they were complaining that the government wasn't spending money on baby formula and diverting it to Ukraine. So there's a hypocrisy there too. You can say what you want, but at least they're trying to represent their constituents and the GOP base. That's something that Democrats never do. In the UK, you have Jeremy Corbyn, who is still principled and is standing up against NATO and its push for World War III, a conventional war with Russia. And he's been branded, I think, Vladimir Corbyn by Boris Johnson today. Uh, I mean, he was a target of the British and U.S. security state. Mike Pompeo promised to push back against Jeremy Corbyn. He promised a British audience, as CIA director, we will push back against Corbyn if he's elected. Like we promise to meddle in your so-called democracy and take out your leader on your behalf. So don't worry. If, so that's what Bernie Sanders is trying to avoid. I don't know what he thinks he's getting in exchange because he ain't doing shit. Uh, but that's well, what did he, he get in
1: exchange? Well, Max, what did he get in exchange when he catered to RussiaGate throughout? The uh, Trump administration. What did he get? He got Russia That's how they rewarded his servitude. Yeah. In, in, yeah. The, in the 2020 primaries, when it was time for Bernie to run again, Bernie got Russia And And uh, they, on the eve of the, of the Nevada caucuses, anonymous intelligence officials leaked uh, claims that Vladimir Putin was trying to install Bernie. And that led to a frenzy of media attention. And everyone, of course, in media went along with it, even though, of course, no details were provided about what the supposed Putin plot was to elect Bernie. It doesn't matter. Because as long as Russia is invoked, it doesn't. You know, whoever the target is, the media will go after them. And that and Bernie that helped sink his campaign. I think voters got the message that oh wait, like Russia wants Bernie, and we've been told for five years that Russia is the cause of all our problems, so we don't want Bernie. That wasn't the only factor, but it was a factor I think. And that's what Bernie got for being a loyal um, servant of the RussiaGate narrative. He got Russiagated himself. And maybe you want to play the clip of when you asked. Matt Dust, Bernie Sanders, foreign policy advisor about this, because it's such a window into the attitude of these people that even when they're being undermined, they're being directly sabotaged in a transparent scam. They go out of their way to declare their deference to it. It's unbelievable. This was in February 2020. And Max, you asked Matt Dust, Bernie Sanders, foreign policy advisor, about why they weren't pushing back on this and why they weren't demanding evidence.
0: Yeah, this was at the launch of the Quincy Institute, which was sort of a think tank that was being proposed as an alternative to the pro-war think tanks on K street. Uh, and Matt dust was participating in a panel with a top foreign policy advisor to Joe Biden. Um, so I got the mic. And here's what also I also heard that, um, Bernie, Bernie sent Sand- Sand- that Russia, Russia was interfering was for Bernie Sanders, Sanders and the campaign's campaign response has to been Sanders. to, um, in the words, the words of, of Ro Khanna, trust, trust the intelligence, intelligence agencies, um, including apparently people who operate clandestine clandestine fashion. Um, why doesn't the Bernie Sanders campaign ask for the evidence? Why hasn't there been a demand to see the evidence or make public the evidence? Um, and what are the consequences of continuing to play defense uh, when this Russiagate narrative won't go away? You know, Russian interference,
1: you know, as has been reported in the senator, I said he was briefed on this question. Um, he was briefed convincingly. Um,
0: he made his views clear. <laughs> Hold on one more time. He was
1: briefed convincingly. You know, Max, it's pretty quiet on my end if there's a way to raise the volume. Maybe that's just me, but.
0: That's just Matt Duss. So Matt okay. Duss Here's said he was, we'll just, we'll just uh, paraphrase. Matt Duss, you know, not the most charismatic person here and he i think what was a little bit nervous um but i asked basically they're saying bernie's that russia it was such an obvious uh you know kind of psyop to paint bernie as a russian asset and what they did was they dumped the security state dumped in the washington post some phony assessment that the russian government and the kremlin was trying to help bernie sanders and the whole point was to catch bernie on the tarmac coming off a plane and, and what do you say about this uh, intelligence community assessment that russia is trying to help your campaign basically that you are the the the, the trojan horse for putin and bernie's like i i i have repeatedly denounced russia and i'm uh, i'm against vladimir putin's an authoritarianism and you know the pathetic defense and then you can see he's irritated but he's being told by his staff not to Counter the press the way Donald Trump did. They're like, you don't want to seem like Trump because we're, you know, we don't like that. We like NPR stuff. And uh, so Bernie, as he's walking off, I didn't have the clip ready. He said, Oh, you're from the Washington Post, though. Of course, it makes sense. And what he's saying is, You are the paper of the CIA and this is what you do. (laughs) But he's not going to retaliate. So then I put it to Matt Dust, like, Why don't you ask the intelligence so called community? To make this public and he said well we just trust their assessment so this is the guy yeah, yeah go ahead
1: well he says in the clip the senator was briefed convincingly
0: yeah briefed convincingly okay yeah. I'm, I'm convinced that i'm a uh, you know that i'm a russian trojan horse it's fine destroy me i just want to be senate budget chairman anyway and you know that's who i am i like the senate i don't want to fight I don't want to fight. I've got millions of young people out there in the street thinking that I'm going to, you know, make college free and cancel their student debt. I've got their hopes up, but I don't actually want to fight because when it comes down to it, I want to go back to the Senate and my house in Vermont and be i be left alone. I don't want to be fighting like Corbin. So that's that's Bernie and his his advisor Matt Duss comes from the Center for American Progress, which is just the trash can of neoliberalism. I for I had actually forgotten Aaron that Tandon existed, but I think there should be like some kind of celebrity boxing match between her and Nina Jankowitz of like Biden administration rejects, um, because she was also rejected for position uh, because she was just too malicious, uh, had made too many enemies. But she was the head of the Center for American Progress, and what she successfully did was rake in a ton of money from arms manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and company. Uh, as well as Israel lobbyists and corporate America, Google, um, the Walton family, to fund the place where the future Democratic leadership would cool their heels. And Matt Duss was there for many years at the Center for American Progress. He was a writer for Think Progress. And there was an interesting episode that took place well, a very illuminating episode that took place while he was there that I was pretty close to because I knew. All the targets of this, think progress as writers, uh, Eli Clifton, Zed Jelani, uh, Ali Gharib, they were, they were all targeted by the Israel lobby, by AIPAC, because they were doing a lot of work on the lobby's plans to push a war with Iran. And they were exposing a lot of the lies coming out of the Israel lobby and the mainstream media. And so they targeted them, and Neera Tandon was approached by Israel lobbyists and their cutouts in Congress, uh, Barney Frank, his sister, Ann Lewis. And they basically told him, fire all these guys. So they fired them all except Matt Duss. And it was because Matt Duss wasn't willing to fight. He basically said, I'm going to go along with the priorities of this institution. I'm not going to fight you on this issue. And then he eventually got elevated somehow. To Bernie's Senate staff and became the lead of his foreign policy team. And now we see what Bernie's doing. Um, Aaron, Matt tweeted something about Henry Kissinger and attacked Henry Kissinger from the right. (laughs) I mean, I never thought I would see this. Remember when Bernie was always was always uh, attacking Hillary Clinton because she said Henry Kissinger was her foreign policy guru. So Henry Kissinger comes out and says, you're going to have to basically negotiate a way out of this conflict in Ukraine because it's destroying Europe. It's totally destroying Europe's economy and uh, destabilizing the region. Stop flooding it with weapons. Henry Kissinger, I mean, he is a realist. And so here's Matt Duss's response. Folks, if your anti-imperialism leads you to not along with Henry Kissinger, it might be good to step back and take a moment. Uh, and I don't think that's what anyone was saying. Like, oh, Henry Kissinger is going to like, um, you know, lead our next uh, socialist, anti-imperialist, Marxist, Leninist reading group. Um, no, no one is saying that. They were just saying, if Henry Kissinger says this, then maybe people, then maybe There's a chance for an opening at some diplomacy. Aaron, what's your reaction?
1: Well, yeah, and the alternative, I mean, if you want to play guilt by association, he's nodding along with George W. Bush, the Cheneys, the entire leadership of the Republican Party, every single neocon think tank, every single neocon in Washington, basically. So that's who he is lining up with. And the point is, what's damning about this is he's now positioning himself to the right of Henry Kissinger. He's more pro-war <laughs> right now than Henry Kissinger. So if that's the position that he wants to put himself in, then then so be it. But it, look, this is why, I mean, he's come out and said that Biden's position on Ukraine is the responsible, progressive position. That's a direct quote from Dust. So this is our leftist opposition right now is people who are completely on board with a with a proxy war. And then what, uh, what they, is that
0: responsible position? It's the position yeah. of, of Victoria Kuland. Ah, uh, Victoria Newland, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. wife of 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 Project New Project for a New American Century co-author Robert Kagan, arch neocon. Yep. It's the position of Tony Blink's Krieg, Tony Blinken, who yep. is the Secretary of State. Who is I don't know how many days he's gone without talking to his Russian counterpart Sergey Lavrov, but there've been there's been no diplomacy. He yep. he's anti diplomacy. The forty billion was about extending the war to prevent the so-called off-ramp for Putin that would allow for a negotiated settlement
1: here. And Bernie yes, Bernie and by, said, the way, by the way, what was Kissinger's proposal that Matt Duss was taking issue with? Kissinger basically said that Ukraine should make ter- territorial compromises in territory where it's already clear that the majority of the population in the territories he's talking about doesn't want to live under Ukraine. That's why there's been a Donbas war is because people rose up in 2014 because they didn't want to live under a coup government that was waging a war on their identity. So Kissinger is saying in Crimea, which Russia, which, which Russia sees in 2014, and which the entire political spectrum of Russia supported, including Navalny. So that's like, you know, in Russia, that's like universally accepted and cheered that, that Russia did that back then because Crimea is seen as so vital to Russia's security. And where the majority of the population, as polls have shown, even if you even if you forget the referendum, you think that was that was completely rigged, which I don't think it was. But even if you think that polls show the majority of Crimeans want to live under Russia, and that's what essentially what Kissinger was saying, is that in areas where you have people re- revolting against you anyway, and where there's been a war for the last eight years, uh, you should give that up if you want to avoid destroying your country. Which to me seems like a pretty reasonable position.
0: It 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 should be the position of the diplomatic corps and the Department of State, but that's not where we are where we are is that this war could spread to transnistria and moldova um poland could enter and attempt to subsume parts of western ukraine it could it could spread in any number of directions when as you said Aaron it's completely obvious that crimea will remain a part of russia and that the population of much of eastern ukraine particularly lugansk and donetsk wants to be independent Of the anti Russian Maidan regime, which is now engaged in a campaign of brutal repression against ethnic Russians, against leftists, communists, human rights advocates, anyone who dissents. It is illegal to publicly question the Ukrainian war effort in Ukraine under direct orders from Vladimir Zelensky, who is just celebrated and cheered on by his true natural constituency, the global predator class gathered at the World Economic Forum in Davos. So we're still a prisoner of these warmongers who want to continue this war indefinitely and entertain fantasies of retaking Crimea and the entire Donbass and basically occupying that entire population instead of granting them the independence that Crimea voted for in 2014 and which Donetsk and Lugansk obviously want. I don't know. I don't know what's so frightening about what's so bad about that. Instead, they want to bring Finland and Sweden in uh, to NATO and fuel conflict on Russia's uh, northern borders and have a conflict around the Arctic. It's terrifying. And you would hope. I mean, this is why I went out on Capitol Hill. I guess I should get out there again. And started grilling members of Congress early on as this conflict escalated into all-out war after February 24th and got Rokana on the record, where he just sounded like a Reaganite and Reagan-era neocon. He sounded like he was on team B from the Reagan administration. He's like, We're the greatest country in the world, and we need to fight for freedom and send, you know, be a shining city on the hill. I'm like, I thought you were supposed to be Bernie Sanders. Successor, but maybe that is what it takes to be Bernie Sanders' successor in a Democratic Party that really is the party of war, whose base is more pro-war, according to a new University of Maryland poll uh, overseen by pollster Shibley Telhami, Most Demo- more Democrats favor a no-fly zone in Ukraine than Republicans currently. So, Aaron, the, I guess I don't really have an answer to this question, but the question is, where does the anti-war movement go when? the people, the politicians they've gotten behind have turned their backs
1: on it. I can't answer that question either, but it's so depressing because, you know, when we came up, there was the Iraq war. That was an exciting time. I mean, uh, both of us were there right here in New York city where I am at the RNC, and that was massive. And that was a yep. real time. And yep. the idea of anything approaching a fraction of that now is just, it's a pipe dream. And, you know, Obama pl- did a great job in killing the anti-war movement. And RussiaGate has done an, an additionally great job in in killing it because it's made being a progressive or a liberal it's a, it's somehow made that um, intertwined with worshiping the national security state and worshiping all of its various imperatives and claims. So that's is very tough when even people who previously like Barbara Lee, you know, who voted against the war on terror, she's also voting in lockstep for. Utterly pathetic. Process. I
0: should have had that clip ready of Barbara Lee where she said she voted for this because uh Russia is spreading disinformation. <laughs> that was what she told MSNBC. Yeah. Like, that is yeah. what what does Pelosi have on these people? Like, what could she do?
1: It's a like, great question.
0: And Jacobin yeah. said, at some point they will have to stand up against this. At some point, <laughs> the squad will have to stand up. Like, no, that's what they are, and you continue to support them. And that was like Branco Marr. Marcick. He, he he spent the rest of his day attacking Jimmy Dore and you know it's pathetic. It's pathetic. I'm done with them. I'm you know, the progressive movement, this is the culmination of the progressive movement. This is it.
1: Well, I hope I hope they turn around and and, and my way well, of it's nadir, to that, Uh you know, I want to make a point about the, the territorial aspect of Ukraine work because it's important. If people like Matt Duss and whoever else don't like the prospect of ukraine giving up territory to russia as a result to end this war what they should have done for the last eight years is join vladimir putin and the russian government in supporting the Minsk Accords, because minsk if implemented by kiev which it wasn't would have kept ukraine's borders intact it would have kept those breakaway areas in in donetsk um under ukrainian control just giving them some limited autonomy we're basically they could essentially veto Ukraine's membership into NATO. That's essentially what Minsk was. It would have given these breakaway republics autonomy, but kept them within Ukraine's sovereign borders. Um, Now, Crimea is a different story. But again, it's been obvious since 2014 that that was never going back to Ukraine after the coup. Crimea was seized in response to the coup. But Russia, for the last eight years, has been promoting the Minsk Accords. And that's why when the breakaway areas... We're asking Russia to incorporate them and to recognize their independence. Russia didn't because Russia was trying to stick to the terms of the Minsk Accords. But it was the U.S. which refused to put any pressure on its client government inside Ukraine to implement Minsk um, that has a huge amount of responsibility for it not being implemented. So if you don't like the outcome of where Russia takes even more of Ukraine's territory now, you should have been there promoting the Minsk Accords during the last eight years of war when, by the way, you know there, were lot, there was a lot of suffering going on, a lot of people dying, which we're not supposed to talk about, but that, that actually happened. So if you don't like the outcome now, then you should have joined the Russian government back when its stance was actually recognizing Ukraine's borders within the Minsk formula, which is now no longer the case. That opportunity is gone.
0: It, it seems to me that the goal all along or the agenda was to use Minsk in somewhat in the same way that the Israelis used Oslo, which is just establish new facts on the ground and keep treating the ethnic Russian population of Donetsk and Lugansk as, uh, you know, target practice. And they thought that they could just get away with it and that there would be no penalty. There would be no accountability. And Russia's invasion operation Z is just reality crashing through all of a sudden they encounter a powerful country that is actually willing to hit them back. The U S was not, this is just something the U S wasn't accustomed to. I mean, it, it sanctions Syria to death, causing electricity crises around the country occupies one third of the country. There's very little that the Syrian military can do against the U S um, or Israel, which is constantly attacking it. Iran is not going to directly intervene at this point. So the U S thinks it can get away with it just as it got away with Iraq and so on. And here reality just breaks through. And it's a country that is a major energy provider and a provider of potash fertilizer that can crash economies across Europe with the flip of a switch the entire economic war against Russia. So far, I mean, there will be long-term consequences and there are major ricochet effects as a new UN report illustrates across the global south. Um, But so far has failed. The ruble is better than at its pre-war level and Europe is facing a dark winter uh, without fuel, without adequate fuel and without enough fertilizer to grow food. And as we see in the US, the stock market is crashing. I just got an email from Merrill Lynch telling me they're pulling out all their EU investments uh, because of the energy crisis there, which is brought on by this proxy war. And Biden can no longer plausibly use the phrase, the Putin price hike. Nobody's <laughs> buying it.
1: Um, so it wasn't a hit for some reason. It didn't it didn't uh, it didn't take <laughs> off.
0: No, I, I wonder if the I wonder, you know, if someone was fired right. for that, I, it was pretty disastrous. <laughs>
1: No, I'm sure they got promoted.
0: Uh, yeah, well, and I, and and then inflation is at the top of everybody's concerns right now. I don't care what like Democrats or progressives say; it's a real issue, and th- that's that's what that's the reality we're in, and this reality is going to play out in the midterms, and it's going to play out in 2024. I don't know where it will lead, but we're staring reality in the face in a way we haven't before. Um. And I guess that'll be a segue into just one other thing I wanted to address because it's a live stream. I got to get out of here uh, pretty soon, but we live in a very violent culture. We live in an imperialist country and an imperialist culture that is just awash in violence. There's there are a lot of people trying to score cheap political points over the wave of mass shootings that we've seen. We've seen three major mass shootings across the country, um, everyone's trying to, well, you know, professional political operatives are trying to point the finger at their political enemies. Uh, but we, we can't point the finger at one person or one factor. Um, and I want to think about it historically, um, these, slaughters. Most recently, I think 21 children were slaughtered in a classroom in Texas. Uh, think about it in terms of the killing of hope in this country when revolutionary leaders, reformist politicians who stood up for the poor and stood up against the Vietnam War in the 1960s started to shake the foundations of power in this country. And one by one, They were gunned down, supposedly by lone gunmen, advancing the interests of the warmongers, the war state, and the kind of people who right now are in a playground for the rich, a hyper-securitized playground secured by uh, 5,000 militarized cops in Davos at the World Economic Forum. Since that wave of assassinations and since the neutralization of revolutionary movements in the 1960s and early 70s, we haven't seen those kind of assassinations of leaders or attempts on the lives of leaders. Instead, we've seen the working class kill its bloodbaths within the working class. The killing of America as the country was swamped By corporate America, with high-powered weapons, with psychotropic pharmaceuticals, and with a nihilistic, digitized culture of violence that now can be experienced in virtual reality through the metaverse and the Oculus, simulation shooter games. And I think this toxic brew is what is leading to these mass shootings we're seeing week after week along with the legitimization legitimization by Democrats who say that they are anti-gun of massive arms shipments to literal Nazis and jihadists from Syria to Ukraine. And so I wanted to close with the words of someone who might have been president on violence in this country. This is Robert F. Kennedy's Robert F. Kennedy senior's speech, the mindless menace of violence.
7: Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation and only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For there is another kind of violence, slower but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books, and homes without heat in the winter. This is the breaking of a man's spirit by denying him the chance to stand as a father and as a man amongst other men. But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again.
0: Well, soon after that speech, as we all know, RFK senior was gunned down and became a victim to the mindless menace of violence. And maybe perhaps his assassination was not so mindless. Perhaps it was more calculated than we've been told. But in any case, I wanted to close with those words. Thanks for being with us for these two hours. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Uh, We'll be back next week. Peace.